Um, Jan's taking over tech for short now films that are big tech. questions, which is a huge, huge undertaking. <laughs> I say huge. It's pretty straightforward. It's just difficult for people like you, Will, who yeah. are technical. <laughs> I'm not very technical at all, and um, you're worse. I am a technical As you man. might be better than me now, actually. I've might grown. Be, I think you might have grown. You've, you've yeah, progressed. And they call Technically. Me, they call me the technical filmmaker. The technical <laughs> filmmaker. It sounds like a terrible they thing They call to be you called. the technical filmmaker. That's what Yian they... Coombs, the technical filmmaker. They whisper that about it, me. Like, the way you said that was like, I thought you were going to come up with some like cool nickname. Yeah. They call me... Maybe it's the... not that cool. But when I'm walking through the BFI, I just hear like whispers like, that's the technical, technical filmmaker. filmmaker. Technical <laughs> He's really good at podcasts. Anyway, this episode's not about you. <laughs> this episode, we had the pleasure of talking to George Magna. Yeah. I hope I said his surname right. I think I have. Um, who I met at Aesthetica many a, many a moon ago. Um, mm. And he was kind enough to chat to us all about his filmmaking journey and his latest short film, Full Better, which is currently doing very, very well on the film festival circuit. Yes. Um, and he was great. He was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can find his trailer online. Um, yeah, as Will said, we spent a lot of time discussing that film and specifically... As well, his discussion to shoot, sorry, his decision to shoot on film, yeah. which was really interesting because we haven't really spoken about that yet in the podcast. No, so we haven't. if you're considering shooting on film, this might be the, the, podcast, the podcast for, for you. you. Also, um, he got really into funding and how he got this funded. Oh, so in, this was um, which my is favorite super, part of the podcast. super interesting, you know, because it's all funded through this charity and yeah. then his own savings as well. Yeah. But all about the pitching process, how he got the charity on board, yeah. what the deal was there. And he gives super clear, like, actionable advice on how to approach these, yeah. these sorts of bodies, these charities, to, to get funding. So, yeah, it's totally yeah. worth it listening. And we, we also kind of delve a bit into the persistence that it takes mm-hmm. to make these short films uh, yeah. and to make pro- projects that you're passionate about, yeah. um, which I thought was um, amazing to hear and, again, super inspiring to hear for, for yeah. both of us. And then, finally, as well, he talks about a lot about balance i suppose in terms of how or his attitude more specifically to working on stuff that isn't his passion projects and, yeah and you know how he i guess yeah as i say finds the balance between that and working on the passion project stuff yeah so yeah hope you enjoy enjoy listening. roll the intro roll it Hello, welcome george to the latest episode of short films big questions Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> um, and by here, George means on on Zoom in the in the metaverse. That's where we are doing our podcast today. Um, it's the future. We're just living in it. Yes, exactly, exactly. So um, George and I met. We're quite a few years ago now, actually, at the BAFTA Guru event in London. Like, is that the first one? Yes, yeah, it probably was, yeah. wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. So- Oh, I didn't know you met a few years ago. I thought you just met um, the other day at LFA. No, no, no. Met probably in like 2019, 2018 or something like that, maybe. Uh, I think it must have been It must have been 2018 because then we uh, we relinked at Aesthetica yeah, just bumped uh, a few into months each other. later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Um, With Last Drop. No, no. I just, I went along because um, I just got a ticket because so I was like, you know, my, my dad actually lives up in oh. York and then... Anyway, and then yeah, you, yeah, yeah. George, was there with your business partner Will. My business partner Will and my uh, one of my producers, Alexandra. Um, we were pushing our then new short, The Cost of Bronze, on the circuit. Um, so yeah, you would have met me 
shortly before its debut at Underwire and shortly after we hooked up again at Aesthetica and we've sort of kept in touch since then. Um, yeah, just been it's... emailing and feedbacking on each other's. You know, you've sent me a bunch of stuff. I've sent you a bunch of stuff. And it's been been nice, man. It's been been yeah. Good. It's, you know, well, you're very it's... honest with your feedback, and I'm very honest with your feedback. Well, I, I I don't know if it's a particularly glorious chapter in my uh, collaborating career, but there was a project <laughs> that Will sent me where uh, he asked for some notes, and I kind of went a bit overboard and may or may not have tried to recut his film on paper. <laughs> I did, I did attach the caveat saying, take as much or as little as this as you want. And I hope there was a nugget of something useful in there. But it, it was. was just- I mean, that sounds like good. That sounds, I, I think I'd appreciate that, you know, like uh, it's better too much than too little. Well, that's always that been my kind of philosophy yeah. with it. And, yeah. you know, it's, we're not doing this because we're making big bucks. And I'm certainly not watching the clock thinking about how much value for money I'm getting out of my time when I do a lot of this stuff. I mean, okay, I've had yeah. to learn to do that once in a while, but, Sometimes you come across a person who you want to put a bit of time and effort into, not just into their work, but them as people. And actually, when I met Will, it was meeting somebody who was at a similar stage on the path. So it felt uh, someone who have, you know, has different tastes, but similar ambitions. And, you know, you you can plod a very lonely path when you're Mm. trying to make filmmaking work. And yeah, Will is just someone I always wanted to invest time and attention into his work and you know i've been very lucky that i've had the same in response oh that's lovely to hear i can't think why about will you know <laughs> i just don't see it but yeah and the the the, the, the um, notes you were giving actually were on last drop and a lot of them were on performance i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> so yain yain was actually the main character in there yes yeah yeah i think there was a lot of like cut this guy yeah give him this oh, <laughs> the lead is not very good <laughs> give me more of the dad i want more of that dad no it was um it was a good um, movie and what was really interesting about that actually was uh Will had a clear vision of what he wanted and the cut that I saw that vision wasn't entirely clear and as a result I think my criticism was quite critical it was good but yeah. whatever you did with it um worked because the version I saw at the end was the version you had pitched to me and it was really really interesting, interesting. that you hadn't just been able to sort of plow through you know just take script to camera to edit to finished thing didn't work that way and yet the germ of the idea remains strong throughout and it actually i think it speaks to you as a director will that you know you 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 found it you you know you worked at it until you found it you know what you might be my i would agree with that actually my favorite guest yet george (laughs) (laughs) i'm buttering you up so i can chat shit later oh um, what's the uh yeah what is the uh the curse policy on this podcast Uh, i should check before i start yayan we're pro swearing here at Short Films Big Questions. <laughs> Yian, Yian it's my a... catchphrase. Yeah. It's his, his, okay. his catchphrase. Yeah. Well, I say it every episode. Everybody always asks. Um, so um, enough about uh, me. Uh, <laughs> this is your episode, George. So what we try and do is we start um, by asking uh, about your journey so far as a filmmaker. Um, you can just take us up to up to date here. Like kind of what, what started you off. And, you know, you don't have to go into so, so much detail. But... Um, be really interesting to know for us, you know, what's taking you up to to making your latest short film. I, I came out of uni feeling like I I was on the pathway towards something, but not really knowing how to how to get there. You know, having the long term goal, but not having any sense of a short or medium term goal, and having almost no experience of working with cameras, working with actors. It was all very sort of 
you know, it was all at a remove. And so that was the point where it's like, well, now I've got to teach myself how to actually do this stuff. So um, I came out of uni, I started work, uh, working in a school, uh, working in education with uh, young people with uh, special educational needs and disabilities. And that is an important part of the story that comes around later that uh, while I was working in a school feeling generally quite uninspired, but needing to just, you know, earn a crust and all that, slowly teaching myself how to make films. Uh, I got my first opportunity uh, to go and make some charity films for a, uh, an international aid charity called Progressio, which saw me uh, join a volunteer team working out in Malawi. Uh, and for a few years, I worked in various forms of sort of charity documentary type film. And and with those charity ones, were you um, were you shooting those yourself? So you were using the camera. What were you doing? Were yeah, you writing the yeah. So I was I was it was yeah. So I was I was a self shooter on most of them, okay. and uh, I had barely got my head around which end of the camera was supposed to be pointing uh, at the subject before I got this opportunity. And it was a, it was something you just had to say yes to. And yeah. uh, I very much learned on the job, very much learned on the job yeah. the process of making a film and. Starting documentary was really valuable because I don't want to derail you too much, but how did you actually get that initial opportunity? Because I think that sort of thing is quite interesting yeah, to really. people who want to just get oh, that yeah. initial foot in the door. Yeah, so it was basically leveraging leveraging something that was something else. Uh, so that was uh, a volunteer placement as part of what was then called the International Citizen Service. Uh, the volunteering part of it. I have some reservations about the effectiveness of it, but it was an incredible opportunity for me in the sense that I was given quite a lot of flexibility to make this role my own. I, I volunteered uh, telling them I had a specialism in media and it wasn't a lie, but it was maybe a slight inflation <laughs> of right, my, my, yeah, yeah, my, my actual yeah. experience at this point. You know, could I take a photo? Sure. Could I write copy? Sure. Could I make a film? Well, you know, I, I, I guess I could. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I'd, I'd been doing my homework and stuff, but I, I think I actually picked up my first DSLR camera, my, uh, my trusty Canon 7D, uh, second hand a week before I was due to fly out and so you know I'm, I'm this you know idiot kid with a camera trying his best to look professional you know not speaking Chichewa very well at all and you know barely getting you know anything right but the the result of it is I came back from that placement with you know an enormous amount of content and the bones of a story and then I had to figure out what to do with it. So uh, I spent about five months learning uh, Adobe Premiere, as it, you know, Premiere Pro was was the the suite to go to back in yeah. back in those days. Um, and we we spent five months, my editor and I, um, piecing this this story together and trying to work out. Okay, I saw something on the ground. Now, how do we translate that from the rushes we've got into a story? Mm. I think, honestly, is the bet is such a good way of developing your your eye and then storytelling like capacity as well. Like, cause I did so much of that, and I know Yarn's done so much of that. It's like piecing together things that you've shot, and then you're just like, wow, I've made this mistake, I've made that mistake, that doesn't work mm. together. Yeah. Um, I wanted to steer this, uh, if it's all right, 
more in the direction of the because I want to get to where you know where you are now in terms yeah, of the narrative yeah. stuff. Um, you um, while you're doing this, so you, you're kind of developing on one side. You're developing this business that's making corporate and charity videos and things, right? And you're developing yourself as a filmmaker in that sense. Are you on the side of that? Are you writing still, and are you trying to make these short films? You know that, that, yeah. that you're making. Is that is that all happening at the same time? Yes. Yeah. So it's quite difficult to uh, extrapolate the sort of different strands of my career, but they are almost like separate times of a fork. They're all there, all growing at the same time. And one has sort of influenced the growth of the other, even if it hasn't felt like that along the way. So I came out of uni to scrub back a little bit and had this sense that I wanted to be a screenwriter or a director, but not really knowing how and having a real sense that no one was going to let me do this in the short term. I didn't have the means, the access, whatever. But that didn't stop me from wanting to try and write. So around the same time that I was getting this gig in Malawi together and I was working in the school, I wrote my first, I'm going to say my first proper short film, as in the short film project that really broke ground for me as a writer-director. And it broke ground for me and me alone um, because nobody saw it. It's it, it never got made. <laughs> Ironically, though, it did turn into my first feature script. Um, it came. It resurfaced years later, um, and it's a project that still, you know, every now and again, it, it still it opens doors as a calling card script. The the feature version uh, mm. rather than the short, but. I had a real sense at that point that I wanted to make fiction and that narrative was where my passion uh, and, and I think my talent really lay and the documentary was more of a means to the end. So I wrote this script back in, this would be in 2014, uh, and just had this sense that if I was given the opportunity, I'd do it. I, I, you know, this is the one, this is the one. And I was, I was laboring under that delusion of this is the one for quite a long time. You know, I was putting the documentary stuff together and that was sort of whatever comes my way, whatever will, you know, pay the rent, you know, and hopefully whatever's interesting as well. But that was much more of the kind of the hard lows, the hard nosed business side of things, whereas the fiction is very idealistic. I didn't have any real sense of how to string this stuff together strategically. I just followed what I wanted to write. And I think that in hindsight is a really good thing. It's slow. It's not always... Uh, it doesn't always feel productive, but I've never tried to make anything I didn't want to make. Uh, mm. And honestly, I don't have I don't have the time or the means to make stuff I don't want to make. So, um, you know, it, it's it, it meant a few years dreaming, I suppose, a few years dreaming while I was trying to put the documentary stuff together, while I was putting the corporate stuff together. Um, and you know, at the time, probably felt a bit thwarted, felt a bit frustrated. Uh, because it wasn't happening and eventually it was shortly after finishing the documentary and I had just been paid from that first corporate education job uh, and I so I, I suddenly got that smell of uh, god I, I can't really call it the smell of success but the smell of you know a paycheck and being like okay maybe there is maybe there is a job that I can forge out of this and that really hardened my resolve. That gave me that mm. steel that I needed to then go back to 
the people I'd worked with previously, so my my then editor uh, was was my key co- creative partner on the first short, and I said I'm I'm going away now. I was I was uh, going overseas again. That was one thing the documentary career did really do wonders for it. You know, really exposed me to the world. But it meant I was never at home. But as I was going away that time, I said to him, I'm going to write a short film and we are going to make it next year. And I had never before had that kind of conviction, uh, that certainty. And it was blind certainty. I had no idea whether we were going to be able to do it or not. And I think for a lot of my uh, my personal development, I have been really challenged by that kind of that nagging voice of realism, pessimism, you know, that underlying doubt that you can't quite shake off. But mm. this this was the first time that I found that kind of iron resolve, I suppose, and said, well, we are going to find a way of doing this. And I spent a few months away at that point uh, and I couldn't do anything practical. So I wrote uh, and out of that period came my first the first script that we made. Um, and yeah, we sort of had to pull it together by hook or by crook. It was, you know, it, it was it was ambitious. And the I suppose the really important thing is that we took it seriously. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, it, it was a flawed piece in the end. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud enough of it, but uh, it had all sorts of niggles and flaws and things that we couldn't, we couldn't have improved on really even if we tried because we were too young and inexperienced. But it was... You know, it was a solid enough piece of work for a for a first short film from a you know a writer director who'd never made anything before from you know a team who were either all students or recent graduates, um, and I think the important thing was that even though we had these limitations, we we took ourselves seriously. And there's a difference between taking yourself seriously and being sort of you know self-serious and being some sort of turtleneck wearing you know voila smoking you know pseudo intellectual it was more of a like okay like we're professionals and we're going to behave professionally we're going to we're going to approach people and we know that we're young and we know that we're inexperienced but we're going to approach you know location we're going to approach cinematography we're going to approach um casting as professionally as we are capable of doing and I think that, you know, that sense of professionalism in your work is something that is so, so crucial if you're going to keep yourself afloat. Because it's very easy to sort of, when, you know, when, when, when you're setting the boundaries and the setting the parameters for yourself, it's very easy to cut corners. It's very easy to feel like, well, I'm not going to do this properly. I was just... Um, should be, should be careful what I say, but uh, I was I was just working on uh, a client project and I had taken a bit of a shortcut uh, through one part of the edit. And honestly, the client hadn't really noticed. And I was just thinking, well, I'm pushed for time. I don't really, you know, have much love for this work. Uh, maybe I can just, you know, leave it as it is, you know, leave the shortcut here. Nobody will notice, it'd be fine. But actually you know, eventually I went back and changed it. And it was nothing more than that sense of, well, I will know it's there. And I can't let that lie knowing that that's in my, you know, in my back catalogue. 
you know, just in case somebody, you know, with better eyes than me saw mm. it and, you know, sussed it and thought, well, that guy, you know, he's, yeah. you know, he's the sort of guy who takes shortcuts. Yeah. He's the sort of guy who doesn't do things properly. And, you know, I, I used the word artist earlier, sort of semi-ironically. I think of myself more like a kind of an artisan in the work I do. You know, more like, you know, a craftsperson. Uh, the thing that always comes to mind is like a cabinet maker. I have a friend who's a cabinet maker and he would never call himself an artist. He thinks of himself as a kind of a, you know, an elevated professional laborer, as I think how he sees himself. But he makes the most beautiful creations out of wood. And it's a kind of, it's a, it's a dying skill. And, you know, he would never, ever want to call himself an artist, but he occupies this sort of space in the middle where he takes pride in his work, and his work is exceptional, even where no one's going to notice it. The joinery, the stuff yeah. around the back of the wardrobe he's making. And I remember seeing some of his early work and thinking, that's the attitude I want to have in the work that I'm doing. And that applies to my Yeah, do you, do you also think, like, all those little pieces that nobody really notices when you put them all together, it elevates the material. 100%. And like, they don't even, yeah, they don't, you know, an audience know, know that it's like an exceptional piece of work or a very good piece of work, but they don't understand why, or they don't understand that it's like this tiny thing, this tiny thing, this tiny thing that all just brings it up. Absolutely. That's something that Absolutely. You know, I've, I've kind of found. You know. I think it was, it was on one of your previous episodes. I think it might've been when you were talking to Hansel and you mentioned this uh, yeah. duality of, do you make things fast and loose or do you take your time mm. and mm. do it right? And I'm very, very much the latter. Um, I've, I think comparative to some people at this stage in their career, like I've, I've made a handful of shorts, you know, I've, yeah. okay. It's, it's, it's starting to look like a healthier number now, but for a long time, I found myself thinking, well, I you know, I claim to be a filmmaker. I've hardly made anything, but each thing that I've made, I didn't, I, I wouldn't. Well, you've made loads of, but you've made loads of com your corporate and your docs, but like your, you, you mean your narrative Yes, stuff, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So the, cor yeah. the, the corporate, uh, the corporate promo work has always been a really good honing ground for sort of, mm -hmm. you know, le learning the shorthand, learning what comes together, learning some of that technical back end stuff. And yeah, yeah and, and, and having that sort of 10,000 hours practice ground, I suppose. But there are certain things that documentary work and narrative, um, you know, there's certain stuff that, documentary and corporate promo work is never going to sort of prepare you for in the narrative space. And those are things where you just have to really sort of take your time and consideration and work out what it is that needs to be done and needs to be done properly. The one everyone talks about is, is sound because it's the easy one to point out when it's shit. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That, that old, you know, there's that old adage about you can save a shit picture with good sound, but you can't save a good picture with bad sounds, you know, and that's just the tip yeah. of the iceberg. You know, you can't, you know, you can't save beautiful lighting with bad production design. Yeah. You know, you can't save beautiful costume or wonderful performance with shit cinematography. Mm. You know, it all has to be as good as you can make it. And if it's not, I don't know why you'd bother, to be perfectly honest. Because it's so hard. Yeah, it's like the one thing, like, the, because like making the corporate stuff and the... And, documentaries are by no means easy but like making the corporate stuff you know it's great as you say a training ground and everything but then when you go into this why it takes a, it takes ages to make these to, to make short films that are good like if you, you know it's all those just like you both were saying it's all those details and it's a lot it's so long it takes it takes mm. so so long just from script to yeah. actually getting to shoot 
especially on you know when you're self-funding it and we'll, we'll go into that in a little bit with your latest mm. one it's it, it's it's the persistence i guess that 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 you've got to be like okay it's like that you were talking about like oh, i'm it's this side of me is the dreamer that's that's mm. i want to make this kind of stuff and i was wondering about and we did talk about it again on the hands podcast about like persistence like how do you mm. because it takes so long and you said you know now i've only made a handful of short films how do you keep that like the the how do you keep the will to do it like the persistence alive uh, alongside your other work oh that's interesting that's a good question um yeah it's just something that i know that yaya and i've talked about it's something i'm struggling with as well you know it's like when you're getting a lot of rejections or it's taking another year to try and make this short film it's like you know what am i doing <laughs> hmm. well there's something that's um there's something that andrew cummings said he's a he's a uh, debut feature director is a his feature the origin launched at london film festival this year right. um and there's something he said um about someone quit the industry today and it wasn't me and that is a really good distillation of the mentality i think you have to take uh in those in those rough times um doing you know making films is attritional pursuing a career in filmmaking is attritional it's exhausting it's demoralizing you are always facing up to no's you know even even the success stories are littered with rejections and you, you know, people say you just have to develop a thick skin and, you know, that's part of it. But that dreamer has to continue dreaming. You have to yeah. continue having those visions and having a certain amount of confidence and belief that those visions uh, are going to lead somewhere. There's a there's a David Bowie interview that resurfaced on my on my Twitter feed the other day. And it was a clip of him saying that. Yeah, young artists need to remember uh, the reason they got into making art in the first place. And here I am going to use the word artist because there is an artistic streak in anybody who tries to pursue a creative path, whether they would identify themselves as you know artistic people or artists or not. And you've got to have a certain amount of belief that you are pursuing that story, that idea, that concept because it is worth pursuing and because it deserves to exist and that somebody else in the world might see that thing that you make and gain something from it and it's you know it's it's a sort of faith thing it's a it's a sort of a slightly weird faith-based thing that you just have to hold on to that there is a reason that i am impelled to pursue these visions and it isn't just self-regard it isn't just an arrogant sense of well you know there are billboards in the world and my name should be on them you know because if you're going to pursue that you're going to fail you know that's far too grandiose uh, a dream to ever really realize and i think one thing you realize is that um success does not mean your name on the top of a billboard the secret to making things a success for me is answering the question that you've put to me there, which is about making the everyday work, you know, making making the path work for you.
Mm. And mm. even in the low moments, even in the, 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 the attritional times, you have to be able to sit with yourself and the work you do and the stuff that you're trying to make and go, well, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't the big picture capital D dream, but I am using my talents and my skills as they've been appointed me to pursue the stories and the situations around me. And the work is not done yet. And, you know, as long as the work is not done and I have, you know, the strength to do it, then, you know, the only person who's going to lose out from giving up is me. And, you know, that's that's enough. If you can, you know, if you can if you can reckon with that, I think that's enough to keep you going. I, th- I think it's really interesting what you said about there's there's something in an idea or a vision or whatever that you get that even in those moments where it's all going wrong and like you've got no money and everything you just there's something that you can't let it go and you can't I've, I've been having this with my latest project and then I finally had the actors read the lines and I was like holy shit this has given me such a buzz yeah. this is why I've been doing it because I was so low about it before and there's an interesting uh Yai and I both have done the masterclass Ron Howard's uh, masterclass and there's something he says in it <laughs> oh, um, really? shout out Ron yeah. and uh good shout out to Ron but he says is it something worth it? It's, yeah it's, it's good is, is it's it good I, I enjoyed it I enjoyed it I, I thought it was it, he's he it was very practical I thought um but he says something he's like every project especially at these you know early stages all of these projects are going to end up breaking your heart at some point there's going to be something mm. that 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 like you know that you've got this amazing idea at the first and everything and then it's the realities around it and you've got to make something something from it and get through that kind of like heartbreak of like okay right i need to mm. move on need to kind of keep going with it and 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 yeah like you say Keen, kind of i'll tell you what the there's pain. yeah there, there's nothing there's nothing more painful than that kind of crumbling reality when you see that the thing that was in your head just isn't going to materialize yeah. and you realize that what whatever it is that you've tried to make isn't quite going to live up to the expectation but equally that moment when the finished thing comes together and everything just clicks mm. there is nothing sweeter i had it yeah, i had it just true. yesterday i got the uh, the sound mix back on my my latest project um uh, and my sound designer and i have had to work entirely remotely on this one um and it was you know we took a big swing with it it was a mixed uh fiction and documentary project there were two strands to it uh this isn't full better by the way this is another project um but it was um it was a mixed fiction documentary project and i'd taken a big swing with the fiction side and over the last couple of weeks i had kind of watched the vision erode away and by this point, you know, in 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 the work, I, I've I've done this enough times to know that this is always going to happen. You are always going to see that shiny gem of an idea chipped at and buffed away, and reality will intervene. And you just have to hope that enough of it remains that you can still get something shiny out of it. And I really didn't know if I would until I got the final mix back. I think that's a good segue, unless you've got another question, Jan, to go into your um, to your latest short film, which um, Jan and I both um, watched and loved, um, called Full Better. Um, and so I actually had a big question about this one. This is obviously it's really a very, very personal 
story. I think we'll get into the funding of it as well, as because uh, I think that's uh, quite an interesting um, pathway. But um, it feels like watching all of your work. This definitely feels obviously like the most personal story, obviously because it's something that you experienced um, yourself. And I was wondering, firstly, uh, if you could give a really really quick synopsis, but secondly, if all of your experiences making shorts and making all these docs to date had led you to make something that personal uh, and what made you kind of because that's quite hard to put something like that on screen like a journey that you've actually genuinely been through that's that harrowing um yes what what led to making something so 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 personal um or quick synop quick synopsis first but then yeah Full Better is uh, a short film based on my own experience of recovery from a life-changing neurological illness that I had when I was a teenager. Uh, so shortly after my GCSEs, I was stricken by this strange autoimmune disease called Guillain-Barré syndrome. And within 48 hours, I had entirely lost control of my body and I was paralyzed from head to toe. Uh, I spent three months in hospital. Uh, I was fully awake conscious my brain was was fully functioning but my body was completely non-functioning and it took three months to regain enough control of my body to be able to start learning to walk again and then uh, I was actually fortunate to have a very sharp decline and a relatively rapid recovery but that still meant uh, a year of intensive neuro rehab uh, learning to walk again and then to run again and those are the two kind of key elements of the recovery journey that the short film focuses on but underpinning that it's about the mental health journey of recovery which is something that is far less remarked upon far less um talked about and actually affected me for far far longer it feels you know watching your other work it's yes yeah, that personal element to it that seems quite a departure from what you've previously done and then yeah you yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right there. Uh, that it is, it's the first time that I've directly tried to mine personal experience of my work. Uh, and to be honest, up until this point, I was deeply suspicious of doing that. I was deeply reluctant to ever sort of mine personal experience for work. It's very much in vogue. It's very popular uh, as as a way of sort of creating and selling stories. Uh, and that is a double edged sword, I think. Uh, in this case, everything that we've spoken about up till now, which I have to admit isn't quite the direction I saw uh, this podcast going in, has led up to the the making of this film. That combination of a situationalist documentarian perspective on filmmaking where you just have to work with what you've got and try and spin magic from it. And then also this kind of idealistic dreamer you know, artist, artisan side of things where you want to try and create something that is really, uh, is, is, is poetic and is rich with ideas and feeling. And Fall Better for me is the first time that I've really been able to put those two things together and say, you know, with, with a certain amount of confidence that I've, I've managed to tell a story that is personal and real and truthful and out of that truth truth is the key word for me here comes that kind of poetic richness it's very much based on my personal experience of recovery both physical and mental and the images the sounds the the texture of the project are really 
the result of me mining that kind of interiority that has become kind of it's it's it's, it's become the way I want to express myself as a creative person. And ironically, it's it's the way it's 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 something akin to what I would call my artistic voice, which is something I only really discovered after the short before this, and then spent two or two and a half years trying to find a project to make that would allow me to say to people, "Look, I found my artistic voice. Now I can show you." You know, up to that to point. World. Yeah, precisely. It's very. It's, it's it was a strange True. thing realizing after the short before this that, oh, okay, now I know what I want to say as a creative person, but. Oh shit, my portfolio doesn't actually contain much of that at all. I think what strikes me about the film is that you are really using that medium um, to, you're using what that medium can offer you. You're, you're taking from it as much as you can with what with, with the mixed media, with you shooting on 16 mil, with intercutting like, you know, kind of the, these moments with him outside and running. Um, yeah, so that was just a comment I wanted to mention that I, you know, it just struck me how much you are using what film can give mm. you to, to the story's benefit. Well, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's worth you sharpening the focus because otherwise I'd be going on all day. But um, that was really important to me as well, actually having a reason to tell this story cinematically. Yes, and yes. The, the use of the mixed film stocks, uh, which we were incredibly lucky to get to do um, for real, because we, you know, we had been exploring... Uh, ways of doing it uh, on varying different budgets you know again it was that determination of well we are going to get this made regardless Mm. Um, and we didn't know that we were going to get to shoot it on film but we did get to do it on a mixture of 16 and 35 mil and we managed to get access Mm. to this extraordinary hand cranked camera from 1910 it was kind of like the sony fx9 of its day uh, this kind is of, that when uh, he's, he, that he's running and falling onto the mat? Is that that bit? Precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah, okay. So mm. there was, so it was this bringing together of these kind of like these visual conceits with the the cinematic medium itself. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm going to be very wanky about it for a second, but to be, but to, but to be serious, thinking about what is it that we can do with film to tell this story in a way that is different from the way I tell this story when I'm just down the pub or I'm. Mm. you know using it as an icebreaker to meet strangers with and it was being able to delve into the psychological truth of it which is those repetitious frantic half-baked images you know that was drawing from the earliest forms of cinematography so that was the work of etienne jules Marais and edward mybridge and their early motion study films from the late 19th century and I realized after a while that, you know, what was in my head wasn't exactly, it wasn't like I was just envisaging these early motion picture pioneers when I was trying to articulate my sense of doubt and my fear of falling and failure mm. when I was learning to walk and run again. But it was, it was very closely analogous. And then it was only later that I started to realize that there was even a kind of a formal truth to the way that we had to go right back to the beginning of sort of filmmaking mm. practice and really limit ourselves, cut ourselves off at the knees in some ways in terms of using this old motion picture technology in order to build, in order to rebuild the picture. Having the opportunity to shoot it the way we shot it and develop it the way that we developed it, you know, constantly being forced to refer back to the documentarian reality, 
but then also having the chance to push that cinematic vision. Those two things in parallel are what made that project work. You, okay, I want to kind of go back. You you said you got burned by a project before, and we kind of touched on it when I met you for coffee the other mm. day. Um, because I think a lot of, you know, it's so hard to get these things funded, and there's these funding bodies, and um, you can end up going through the ringer with them for years. Um, mm. And on this one, I can't quite remember what you said. So did you try and get funding from one of the public filming, uh, from one of the filming bodies in the UK or, and, or did that not work? And then you went through the Kickstarter route. What could you t- talk to us a bit about, a bit about how you got this all off the ground? Um, yes. You know. Yeah. So it's worth, it's worth briefly returning to the previous project because part of the reason that failed was because of this inflexibility in terms of my attitude to the making of it. Uh, we tried and failed for public money and actually we had uh, an incredibly generous round of development from the BFI in the interim Uh, but ultimately it wasn't enough to get that film to the threshold it needed uh, to be made we we worked out we needed a minimum budget of £10,000 cash basically to be able to go into production because it was it was ambitious and it was too ambitious and I didn't have the mental flexibility to make it work any other way. Uh, so that project went away for a while. And in fact, it's only now coming back because of uh, my change in attitude to it. And that's something that I learned on full better. From the very outset, we went back to that kind of core of steel attitude of we are going to make this. We're going to find a way of making this. and. The only thing that's going to limit us is our ability to bend to the needs of the project. Um, So we put it together and my producer and I costed it uh, and we worked out that we could do it for, we reckoned around the 10 grand mark, you know, and the first thing we did was go, well, you know, we know it'd be nice if we had a bit more, but we know that we can do it the way that we'd like to do it for around 10 grand. So now how would we do it for seven? Now how would we do it for five? Is there a way that we can make this film for 3K? And we we worked out budget possibilities in quite broad strokes, but we had budget options at all those different levels because our mentality was is that what is important here is that we make the film. And Ooh. if that film has to be different from the film, capital T, capital F, the film. We are going to make a film of this. We're going to tell this story and we're not going to hang around for two years waiting to try and like accrue enough momentum to get this done. We're just going to get it done because no matter how personal, how special, how whatever this project is, it is another project on the pathway to other projects. And that's the attitude we took. So we had a small amount of personal savings, my producer and I, that we put in. It was around £3,000. So we had that to start with, and that was really, really valuable. Um, I should point out that was most of what I had remaining in savings at this point. You know, COVID, you know, hit me as hard as everyone else. And every time I go into making a project, I put some of my own money in. And what I don't put in in terms of cash, I put huge amounts of additional time in. Mm. Um, I produce on my my work as well as writing and directing. Um, so it was you know it, it was a way of 
it was it was it was it was a way of getting the ball rolling was being able to put some money in not a huge amount of money but you know a significant amount for me personally and saying well regardless of what happens there is something in the pot and it was a bit of a, it was almost like a pledge to myself and my producer to each other uh, that we are going to do something with this um, and without that the project could have fallen on its ass I think that was part of the reason that the previous one didn't materialize is because we weren't in a position to muster up that like that little bit of initial mm. seed funding mm. um, and the, that was really valuable because actually we could go to people and say we already have some money that's incredibly important you know you are at the end of the day talking about trust networks you are building a new trust network every time you make a new project and unless you're very lucky and have a fully fledged team around you who you've worked with before and who are absolutely invested in you and your vision you're always going to be pitching anew and that's what we had to do we had to figure out who can we pitch this idea to so we went for public money and we didn't get it at this point in my career i just think this is part of the course you might as well apply for public money every time you can and be entirely realistic about your prospects of getting it and there's no point you know spending too much uh sweat and blood on it but equally uh, there's no point getting too upset about it if you don't get it. it. You know, your time might come, it might not. In the meantime, you've got to decide whether you want to make films or not. You can't wait to be anointed. Um, so we knew that a crowdfunding campaign was a possibility, but we also didn't want to lean on it. Uh, I've done bits of crowdfunding in the past, uh, not very much, not enough to be super confident with it, but enough to know kind of what my realistic expectations might be from it. And I'm not well connected enough or well resourced enough to be able to guarantee a big haul of money from people. You know, I'd get a bit, I'd get some very enthusiastic, um, supportive backers from my personal network uh, who I cherish enormously and without whose support I would not have a career, to be perfectly honest but their support is not in 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 the money stakes mm. so we had to look for another way the thing that really made it all click was pitching charities uh which is something that we had explored before but never seriously uh tried and this time i decided uh to pitch charities i went to about 30 different charities that specialize in uh, different kinds of neurological illness, recovery, mental health. Um, and I had a fairly well-worked treatment at this point, and I was getting better at being able to sort of encapsulate the pitch of the story. Um, and so I sent out about 30 cold emails, uh, which is something that I've had to learn to get good at from uh, the, the, the business that I run the, mm. the the corporate promo stuff. I hate cold emailing. I'm I I, I hate emailing generally, mm. but where some people hate cold calling, I hate cold emailing. But you had to do it in this case, um, and most of them went out into the ether, and we didn't hear much back. Uh, I've learned from the business that a a ten percent uh, conversion into a reply is a success, mm. and a one percent conversion rate into work into certain material is a success mm. so sending out 30 emails i hadn't sent out enough emails to guarantee statistically that i was actually going to get anything back but i ended up getting a couple of responses i had got a few people who were just 
no, no. sorry, we can't, we can't give cash out to people. There were a few who were supportive of the project but weren't in a position to give money. And then there was this one charity who I had never heard of before called GAIN, um, who are very small and very niche and very focused on supporting people who've had the kind of neurological condition that I had. And they're not really interested in growing as a charity and having a big public remit and a big public profile because not enough people get the illness that I had to make that worthwhile for them. But that smallness and that focus meant that they were prepared to listen to me. And actually, the thing that I think doubly made it work is that the chair of that charity sits on the board of another charity. And so she actually got my email twice. And she had noticed that I had been tweaking my emails from place to place. And, you know, that was important as well. I wasn't just sending out stock emails. I was trying to focus them and think, well, what is it specifically that this project could offer this charity? Because ultimately you're trying, you know, there isn't much of a business in making shorts. I was intrigued when Hansel said on your your recent podcast that he'd found a market for shorts because I certainly haven't really seen a way of monetizing them yet. But um, but you are still going through that sales pitch program, and if you are, and then um, just just your pitch on those emails, I think it's always interesting yeah. to like get specific for for listeners and for us as well. Were you saying like were you giving any information about oh? If you were to come on board, then this would be good exposure for you. Um, or how how are you framing it mm. so that it was like a benefit for them? So brevity was really important in those early emails. It was just trying to make clear to them that thematically this fits with the topics and subject areas that you are supportive of, and that we are looking for ways to make this project more widely applicable than simply being a kind of a personal art project and we would love to talk to you more about how to do that there were cases where i thought i saw a specific in where it's oh i I see that you have this event and maybe this will be supportive of this event or this would fit as part of this campaign now i don't know if that failed but certainly it didn't directly lead to anyone saying Mm. oh well we're programming this event and we'd love to fund you as a result it didn't lead to that so it was um, more like kind of forming, you weren't necessarily saying, I'd love to have you on board as, um, you know, to help fund us. You were saying you were kind of keeping it quite open at that point. Yes. Like we'd so, like to kind of, inc- you know, get this relationship yeah. going so, with this project. So it was about seeking support is what I asked mm. for. And, you know, I said, you know, yeah. we are looking for funding, but we are also looking for other kinds of support, including uh, we were looking at recruitment right. because uh, we were looking at casting um, non-actors who'd had experience of life-changing illness and injury and that was a that was a really significant part of the, this charity progress as well which I'll, I'll come on to shortly uh, we were ve- I was very very conscious that you don't just want to go to these places asking for money you know because because a lot of them will just look at that a lot of them did they looked at it they fixated on the money part they went no we don't have any money sorry goodbye mm. or sorry no we're not in a position to sh- support projects you know and and that was the end of the conversation whereas the ones who did respond were the ones who clearly saw the email in the more holistic sense the ones who saw this as well money would be nice 
but there are other things that could come out of this conversation and i think with all the you know all the experience i've had of these kind of cold pitches uh where you get the opportunity to do them where you get the opportunity to have a meeting with someone interesting or important or influential um i just always remember the advice that gets passed down about not going in just with a want you know go in there looking to have a conversation looking to learn something and treat the the hard want as a i suppose a nice bonus even if you know obviously you know the reason you're having this conversation because you really want their money because you want it you want their support to get the film made and that's what you're doing and obviously we know that but if you go in with that kind of like grubby attitude then you're not going to present a very you know pleasant persona to whoever it is who's taking time out of their day to to humor you and you know what you might learn something interesting you might make a really interesting fruitful contact and start a relationship that you hadn't seen coming and those happy accidents are the ones that are often most fruitful even if they don't lead to anything well they don't lead to anything in the short term that feels you know materially beneficial so you'd done a lot of research into game before that first meeting with them. Honestly, honestly, no. I hadn't done a lot of research before I emailed them, but I made sure I did my research before that we got on that call. And I yeah. made sure that yeah. the first part of that call was not about me and my project. It was about our shared interests. It was about mm. things they'd done in the park and I, the things we'd done in the past, things they'd done in the past. And that was the beginning of it was the beginning of a relationship it wasn't the beginning of um a haggling process yeah it was exactly the same when i met uh the producer on for better josh i had met a whole bunch of producers um leading up to getting this project started and he and i hit it off and spent half of our first meeting talking about stuff that was completely away from careers and work Unlike some of those producers I went in, and, you know, neither their fault nor mine, but it was a very professional, brisk conversation where we were very quickly off the small talk and into the project. The person I wanted to work with was the one who I spent 40 minutes talking about, you know, horror stories from, you know, our work overseas, just Mm. messing around and, you know, having a bit of fun and actually taking a bit of time to invest in each other as people. And the same approach works for clients and it works for funders. You know, funders want—they yeah. uh, don't want—they don't want your project. They want you. Yeah. And you have to give something back to them, and you have to show a certain amount of interest in them. And that is the basis of a fruitful relationship. And that is what has to come first before any talk of exchanges, transactions. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's you know, the project—the project's just a project. You know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a way of materializing the relationships you build and the things you learn and discover. And, you know, if you're not interested in the discovery process, then why are you making the work, honestly? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to go into, like, so then after you had this meeting, you guys connected and you were talking, like, through everything about you and the, the, the shared, um, the, the experience that you went through and what they, what they helped, how did they end up supporting the project? Um, and then what did you mm. end up like how's that developed how's that relationship yeah um, developed from that first meeting right so we were on the pitch call which didn't feel like a pitch call at first but we knew it was a pitch call and um, I outlined the project 
And I thought I'd done quite a good job uh, compared to some of my my efforts at being quite concise and focused in terms of explaining what it was and what we were about and what we needed. And they listened and they nodded and they said, this is interesting and this is nice. This is, you know, this is good and we're supportive, but we can't take this to our board. There isn't enough value in what you're suggesting to us for us to go to our board and say, we just, you know, fired off several thousand pounds on a creative piece of work that we, you know, that doesn't just lay down the facts, doesn't just, you know. Yeah, and then, it's just just to jump in as well, sorry, just quick on that. What is the, the value to them? It is, is it exposure when you're being supported by a charity like Gain? And, or, is it, and, or is it like, just because it is a, a, a good endeavor for a charity to be involved in because they're trying to help um, raise awareness? I, on the spot, thought, Maybe I can pitch them a documentary that we can make for practically no additional cost and they get two films for the price of one. And one of them is a straight uh, a straight arrow down the line uh, making of that is also centred on, at this point it was just me, um, as a recovery, as a survivor. Um, and perhaps they'll go for that. And so quickly spun that. And then, because there was an element that, that um, falling for better could be useful to them still. Like even as a fictional short yeah. that's expressionistic, it would still be beneficial. Yes, um, it would It would still be beneficial. And I have to admit, they've been proven right on this when we've started to share the short. The documentary grounds the impressionism of the fiction film in a way that makes it very plain and clear what it is that we're trying to do. Mm. And for a lay audience, for a, for the general public, that is really important and really valuable because, you know, your average, you know, your average internet user is not going out of their way to look for a slightly enigmatic non-linear art film about the interior experience of disability, illness and recovery. Yeah. But if they see that, and then they have this contextualizing documentary piece, which has the subject front and center and is speaking very unambiguously about that experience. It clicks right. for a much wider range of people. And even as I was spinning this, and I really was spinning it slightly out of thin right, air. On the spot, yeah. It just reminds me of like, say, the conversation may not go exactly the way yeah. you want it to go. Mm. You know, like you, you know, you might not get the opportunity you want, but there is a, what Amos said. And I know this because I was trying to soundbite it yesterday, but like it's like um, there is always a route to what you yes. want. Yes, but you know it may be like you may have to go around the back yeah. to get yes. Uh, to get the and front I, I, I listen to that around what you want. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and it's yeah. that again. I think it's that bamboo mentality yeah. that the flex is what will bring the strength. It's what will make the project mm. strong, and it will get you closer to making the thing you really want. Mm. And yeah. I, yeah, I listened. I, I listened to Amos's podcast. Um, that was the first one I listened to after we spoke about this, Will. And um, I've just found myself sort of nodding yeah. furiously in agreement <laughs> as I was listening to it, because all of a sudden yeah. they could see it, they could sell it. Yeah, and, so interesting. And then, and then it stopped being a question of could you give us some money, and then it was a question of well, how much, how much can we give you? And we were sort of like. Yeah. Oh shit! I, I, like, how much is reasonable to ask for? And um, and you know, it's still you're, you're still having to sort of 
you know, tread carefully. I had no idea what they would think was a reasonable amount, whether they were imagining, you know, 500 quid or five grand. And in the end, again, we, we pitched them. We pitched them a deck with three different costings. I think this was this was maybe slightly overcautious on our part, but we pitched them three different costings with a pie chart for each saying, if you pitch us this much, this percentage goes into the making of the film and this percentage is is the sunk costs for making the extra doc. Right. And the pie chart got progressively smaller in sunk costs and progressively bigger in terms of finished film. The pitch being that all the things that would be our fee for the making of the doc would be ploughed straight back into the budget of the film. It's such a, it's such a smart way of going about, like just a really uh, smart way of going about funding. Well, I think I think it was recognizing like what else is it that we can offer them, because you know, obviously you know making a film is always to some extent an indulgence. Um, you know whether it's the client indulging themselves and paying you to do it, or whether it's you trying to pitch something that the clients didn't know they wanted or needed until you pitched it to them. And then just to say like just to clarify in my head exactly what it was, you were like, okay, how about this? Um, you know, you you really want to do content that is about survivors mm. and about their stories to help encourage uh, people who are going through this right now. Um, how about we do a documentary alongside of it in which I talk about myself and my experiences um, and then as well as the short film. And then we kind of Precisely. You know, split the money, split the money both ways. Precisely that. And so the, yeah. the, the two key things were it's about me which I, yeah. just to be clear, I fucking hate the fact that it's about me. <laughs> and as soon as we got the green light, it was about, okay, how do we make this less about me and more about other people yeah, and things? Yeah. Um, but they wanted me. And my personal lived experience and the uniqueness of my perspective and all of that stuff was really valuable to them. And they didn't want that masked behind another project. But equally, it was selling to them the making of the project is part of the journey of recovery it was saying that actually so so then the documentary was about you know it wasn't just here is a person who's making films and he used to be sick isn't that nice it was this is a person who's making films about the journey they've been on and this is part of the journey they've been on okay so our final question um as i think we mentioned to you by email is what is your favorite short film or, Will likes to add to this question as a caveat, a film that has recently blown you away. It mm-hmm. impacted you, away. you, actually, I think is what I normally say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I absolutely hate these kinds of questions. Aha. And yeah. I would tie myself in knots if I try to definitively tell you what my all-time favourite short film was. But I'm going to I'm going to mention two that are okay. very closely yeah. entwined, one of which I came across a few years ago and one of which I came across yesterday. Uh, and I think they are mirror images of each other and they are magnificent examples of short filmmaking in its, I think Ooh. it's purest distillation. Um, okay. One is called Nest by Hlino Palmerson, who uh, had a film called Godland premiere at LFF this year. And a few years ago, his feature, A White White Day, was probably it was it was my one of my two favorite films from that year's festival phenomenal up-and-coming filmmaker who made a short film called nest okay and that's on movie at the moment and it it is yes and it is magnificent it's so simple and focused and clever without being without being clever it's 
just a brilliant short film. And very similarly, in terms of its uh, formal conceit, a film called Over by a guy called Jorn Threlfall. Over? Uh, How would... Spelling that? Over. O-V-E-R. Just over. like Okay, right. Yeah. And and both of them use a very similar conceit, which is a fixed camera position that never changes, Mm, which is... It's tremendously difficult to then tell a story out of and i think very few people yeah, have the Roy balls Anderson to pull it off like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's really tough too. yeah and they both they both work with time in a way that is absolutely fascinating and there are very few short films i've seen that have genuinely made me gasp and both of those films made me gasp wow okay um wow. Okay. and 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 um yeah so Nest by Helena Palmerson and Fall by Jorn Threlfall, which I think is a short of the week pick from a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. Last awesome. name is spelled T H R E L F A L L. Wow, that's very that, okay. awesome. I'm gonna. I just seen Nest on movie, so I'm gonna definitely check that out. I watch it. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely great. wonderful. Yeah, it's oh, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, wicked, man. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. And it's a real privilege, actually, to have a chance to pick over some of this stuff and pull out some of the kind of connecting strands. And they are honestly not mm. the strands I would have thought we'd be talking about. 